Well, good morning. Again, if you have a Bible, turn to the book of James. Uh, it is a short letter towards the back of the New Testament, immediately after Hebrews. And we have sermon notes and Bibles and pens. If you need any, if you didn't get one on the way through, uh, raise your hand and one of our amazing, handsome elders uh, will... We only have the handsome elders on duty today. No, just kidding. Um, we'll get you what you need. So, Perfect. Well, as you turn to uh, James, as uh, Kim mentioned, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we've already heard from Carenet, uh, and now we're going to wrestle with, with what Scripture has to teach us about the value of human life and the costly love of neighbor to which Christ calls us. And to that end, our passage here in James is particularly fitting. So James begins this way in chapter 2. Verse 1, my brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Favoritism is a word that I feel compelled to un unpack because I love talking about favorites. You know, so often we break the ice with people we're getting to know by asking them just about these sorts of things. What's your favorite color, your favorite animal, your favorite home-cooked meal? Your favorite uh, fiction author, your favorite era of history. I don't know if anyone else asks that. It might just be me. Uh, the truth is much of our identity is built upon who and what we prefer. What's more, our, our life experiences and personalities make us naturally partial towards certain types of people. I'm naturally partial towards immigrant, blue-collar laborers, and mischievous old ladies uh, because of both my life experience and my deep love and affection for my dearly departed grandmother. So I have a soft spot for folks like that. Uh, and personality-wise, I'm positively predisposed to, to passionate people who are eager to talk about their thoughts and feelings. I'll let you guess why. But being naturally partial and showing favoritism are not the same things. The Greek word here for showing favoritism is a mouthful. It's prosopolemsia, and it literally means to receive the face. In other words, to judge based on external appearances or to make uh, distinctions of favor and respect according to a person's kind of social value. There's two uh, Old Testament passages that kind of immediately come to mind for me. One is uh, the Lord saying to the prophet Samuel in Samuel 16, do not look at his appearance or his stature. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. I also remember Moses' articulation of God's character in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God does not play favorites, nor does he discriminate based on social distinctions. He does not receive the face, but he sees to the very core of who we are. 
And James doesn't tell us don't pay, play favorites because playing favorites is not nice. He says, as you hold on to the faith that you have in Jesus, show no partiality. He's making a bold claim. He's saying he's explicitly linking fealty to Christ and the message of grace. He's saying we cannot be faithful to Christ and his message if we are showing prejudice and preference. Those are incompatible expressions for those who know, love, and have been transformed by the good news of Jesus. It is incompatible with any expression of prejudice and preference. He's explicitly grounding us in the gospel. So I have to ask, according to the gospel, what gives a person's life value and sacredness? Think about that for a second. On the back of your sermon notes, we have our little working definition of the gospel. It is this, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ and the salvation made possible for all who believe. It's the glad announcement that Jesus has defeated evil, sin, and death through his own life, death, and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. So what do we see? Well, first we notice what the gospel does not say. It does not say that our value resides in our moral purity, in our contribution to society, or into the strength of our our mind, our body, our spirit. Our worth is utterly disconnected from tribal identity, social status, personal development, even our responsiveness to God. I think we assume that Jesus came to elevate and to make no new those who defeat the power of evil, sin, and death in their lives. You perform, you impress, you balance the scales so the good outweighs the bad, and you will be deemed valuable. You will be considered sacred in the eyes of God. That's not actually the gospel at all. Jesus has not come for those who defeat evil, sin, and death, but for those utterly defeated by evil, sin, and death. He came for the weak and the broken, for the ignorant and the rebellious. He gave his life even those for those who would reject and oppose him, who would count themselves among his enemies. And the salvation he offers is for all who believe, all who will humble themselves and trust him. Our worth, our value, Our sacredness as human beings does not rest in anything we bring to the table. It rests in God's gracious engagement with us. You see, it's the Lord who made humanity bear his image. It's the Lord who calls us his special representative, who upholds our worth and claims us as his beloved children. We are the product of his creativity and his tender love. It's why we exist. Our value and our sacredness rests in his investment in us. And it's proven by the fact that Jesus went to the cross for us all. That God saw is not too high a price to give his very only son to rescue and redeem us, to secure for us life abundant and everlasting in his holy presence.
presence. So as those who stand on account of God's indiscriminate grace, James instructs us to show no partiality or favoritism, but to recognize the value and sanctity of every human being. He goes on in verse 2. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place. Uh, One of our guys at men's group said, each one of us would have a different understanding of what the good place is in the sanctuary. For some, it's the front row. For some, it's the back. For some, it's the wings. But sit in the good place. And then yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You see, normally we engage the biblical notion of the sanctity of life uh, through the lens of the unborn. James today is addressing this topic through the lens of the poor. It seems like Christians to whom James is writing, they're showing deference and preferential treatment to the affluent and the influential who walk through the doors of their community, while neglecting those in their midst who are are poor or socially undesirable. They're affirming one group is more valuable than the other. One group is more worthy of attention, uh, investment, care. So before we slander the motives of our spiritual forefathers, let me explain why that kind of partiality might come natural in their context. Right? Some of it's just human nature. We have this almost bone-deep belief in cosmic karma. Hey, if this person's thriving and doing well for themselves, if they're untouched apparently by the cares and anxieties of life, well, they must be doing something right. They must have deeper insight or, or greater work ethic or, or more uh, efficiency or focus or discipline. Maybe it's a little bit more superstitious than that. Well, maybe this person is just blessed with luck, favored by the universe, and you kind of we want to rub shoulders with them and hope that some of the, the positive juju rubs off on us. But the other part of this is that a, a friend of means is a friend indeed, they think, in that culture. These early believers lived in a society that explicitly favored those of wealth and status. Check this. Roman laws were bald-faced in their bias because they thought that lower-class folks would, would act from economic interest and meanly. They were legally barred from bringing any sort of accusations against their social better betters. Yet uh, rich folk could sue those below them with impunity and often did, dragging into court uh, those who did not have the resources to defend themselves. What's worse was that penalties in those days were graded according to class. A lower class individual faced a far stiffer punishment than an elite neighbor who was convicted of the exact same crime. So yes, this was systemic injustice, but it was a society that firmly believed that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. They lived in what was called a patron-client culture. 
So folks, especially poor folks, secured their future by hitching their wagon to a powerful friend, to a person of means and influence who could advocate for them in the public square, who could insure them against catastrophic loss, who could kind of favor them with work opportunities or connections or benevolence when they needed it. In return, the clients gave their patrons their their vote, their muscle, their undying loyalty. The whole system was skewed towards the wealthy, uh, but even the poor believed that what was good for their patrons would be good for them as clients. You have to remember to whom James is writing. He's writing to Jewish Christian immigrants living in the far-flung corners of the Roman world. Many of them are poor. Most of them are isolated. They lack friends and connections in the cities that they live in. And yes, sure, there's a Jewish synagogue in town, but they've been ostracized from their own people because they proclaim Jesus as Messiah, as the one that Israel was waiting for. So they are in need of help and connection. And now a prominent member of their community starts attending their their Christian gatherings and they ultimately put their faith in Jesus. It's natural that they would uh, fawn over them. Do you blame them for investing special care and attention to their discipleship to, to make sure they're equipped to carry forward God's cause and the cause of God's people there in their city. They say, hey, this powerful man, this wealthy widow, this popular family could be a really gift, real gift and blessing to the church. In contrast with the poor laborer who comes in with paint flecks all over his only one good pair of jeans. It's like, oh, hey, buddy, good to see you. Sit there, stay after church. Maybe we can, you know, gather together our five loaves and our two little fish and uh, pray that God would multiply them. If not, you know, I hope you like rice and beans. Hey, Lori, get more food for the potluck. This guy's not bringing anything to contribute, right? That's kind of where they are. They're like, yeah, sure, life is, all life is sacred and worthwhile, but some folks are worth the investment while others are a net drain on our time, our energy, and resources. All are welcome, but does anyone have a rich uncle? Because we could really use him. And James rebukes this worldly wisdom that's taken root among God's people. And he stands up to say that for individuals who cling to Jesus' love and power, there is no place for this sort of preferential treatment. It's an affront to the sanctity of every human life and to the reality that Jesus died for each and every person on this planet. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. 
I'll go over this quick, but James's rebuke is threefold. And I really appreciate how there's a biblical scholar named Douglas Moo, who has a great last name, Moo. Uh, he describes it this way in his commentary. So I'm going to paraphrase his points there on your sermon notes. First thing he says is a dismissive attitude towards the poor stands in contradiction to God's own evaluation of them because God honors them. God, it says, has chosen the poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And I don't think this is God glorifying the experience of poverty, but the Lord has committed himself in a special way to the vulnerable. He's invested in their future, and right now they have an opportunity to know him more intimately and to experience his care more tangibly on account of their need. It says in Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is protected. Now go visit a, uh, a blue-collar immigrant church. There's two meeting in this building later today. You could just stick around. And you'll discover that these congregations know this truth in their bones. They've had to depend upon the Lord in this way. They've had to trust his authority and guidance to carry him through the, the vagaries of life. They're rich in faith. They're well-trained in God's character and his constancy. And I know many of you are as well. And Proverbs continues. It says, The wealth of the rich is his fortified city. In his imagination, it is like a high wall. But we know that that wall is not as strong or as high or as permanent as we might want it to be. If you remember in James chapter 1, James told us this, Let the brother of her humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beauty, beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. If you're lowly and God brings blessing and favor into your life, enjoy it, celebrate it, know that your Father in heaven cares for you. Even in your desperate situation, you are exalted because the Lord is with you and in your corner. Now, if you have resources and are used to um, earthly comfort and security, when you find yourself in a difficult season, celebrate it. Enjoy it. It's an opportunity for you to trust the Lord and to know in your bones that your provision and your protection does not rest in your job, your 401k, your physical strength. All that can evaporate in an instant. And our one and only refuge it's the God who loves us and who is making all things new. So James says, in the light of this, how can we spurn our spiritual brothers and sisters who are experiencing poverty? How can we deem their lives as less sacred, less worthy of honor? We'll move through his last two points quickly. He says, number two, such fawning over the rich betrays a servile mentality. These are the ones who are persecuting believers in their context. James rejects what he sees as kind of their pathetic groveling. 
He says, you act like these men and women of means are your security and your provision. They're not. I am your patron. Quit acting like they're servants. They are not the ones who will get you through difficulties and oppressions. I am. In fact, they might be the source of many of your current difficulties and oppressions. We'll chat with James about politics later. Number three, such neglect and disregard for the lowly violates the centerpiece of Jesus' royal law, which is love your neighbor as God has loved you. James continues here in verse 10. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you're a lawbreaker. Basically, don't pick and choose what you want to obey. You break some of it, you break all of it. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. According to Jesus, this is the heart of his instruction for his people. The divine guidance that leads us into freedom is to focus our efforts and attention on loving God and loving others. And James fears that second piece of loving others has become something that his people have forgotten. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your friend, your stranger, your enemy as God has loved you. And James gives shape to this love by reminding us that God's love leads with mercy, not judgment. It means refusing to receive the face, refusing to render judgment on the basis of external factors, refusing to dispense care and favor based upon the value that a person might add to your life, but based on the value that God places on that person's life. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project puts it this way. He says, James, he calls him Jacob, exposes how we tend to show favor to the people who can benefit us, and we neglect people who can't because they're needy. This behavior is opposite of the love of love as Jesus defined it. I've noticed this kind of calculating lovelessness more and more often these past few years. Folks say, hey, for the sake of my mental health and thriving, I can't have messy, needy, emotionally taxing people in my life. Sorry, in the name of self-care, boundaries, I'm not going not to interact with those people. I just can't. They're not going to add value. I saw my buddy cut out a whole host of people whom he had a relationship with because they no longer saw eye to eye about religion and politics. And he said, I'm doing this in the name of curating my sense of identity, whatever that means. Right? I've even heard a few people uh, who are committed to talking with others only strategically at church. Hey, my relational cup is mostly filled by my family and my friends outside of here. Uh, So there's little need or space in my life for new relationships. I'll only approach and engage uh, those that it seems like we'd have something in common, something where we're in the same demographic and we might be able to add value and richness to each other's life. 
that lady over there, that guy, uh, what would we talk about? What use are they to me? That's not love as Jesus defines it. It's not how God loves us, is it? I've titled today's message, Sacred People and Unquenchable Mercy. And I want us to end with this question. What does it mean to show mercy and honor the sacredness of all who walk through our doors? Whether it's the doors of our church or the doors metaphorical of our life. What does it mean to show mercy and to honor their sacredness? A couple thoughts from this passage. Uh, It looks like not judging, not uh, condemning, not speaking over someone the verdict that, wow, you're just royally screwed up, or you're morally flawed, or you're hopelessly broken. No, it's not judging. God is our judge. We show love. We show mercy. I think it means acknowledging people's presence. One of the things that most amazes me in the gospel is when Jesus, in the course of his busy ministry, he's in a rush, he's got three years, he always stops and he looks people in the eye and he acknowledges them as a person with value in the eyes of God. I think it means relational investment, opening up your life to being in friendship, in relationship with people. It means generous listening. And having a humble learner's spirit. Don't think that you're the only going to be the one who's blessing them. God might be blessing you through them. And hey, you only see the outside appearance. You don't necessarily recognize the gift that that person is. I think showing mercy and honoring sacredness means being willing to waste your time, quote unquote, for them. I am married to an introvert, and I love her. And if I was like, okay, now I'm not perfect at this. Brianna will say I do this anyway. But like, if I'm like, okay, 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 I don't want to waste time, I would miss so much of who my wife is and the incredible insights and wisdom that she has. And I have to go into the interactions being willing to waste time, to be inefficient, to slow down, to be generous in my listening, and to see, wow, This person is sacred and holy and precious in God's sight. Let me tarry. Let me rest a while. Honoring sacredness and and showing mercy, I think, means speaking positive affirmation. Some people walk into this community and they've not heard one uplifting thing all week. Will we be that voice of the Lord, that encouragement? It means prayer, praying for people. It means serving them. It means meeting their practical needs. It means this, and I love this part. It means stewarding hope for their future. Sometimes people can't even see how God might bring victory and freedom and newness into their life. They only see their brokenness. They only see the problems. They only see the burden. And we get to steward hope. No, God is bigger than that. No, God can break that addiction. No, God can bring healing to that relationship. No, God can use you. He's developing you into this person that he's created to be. We steward hope for people when they can't even see it themselves. 
And then this last one I steal from our last line of our statement on the sanctity of human life. As such, we work to defend the dignity, worth, and wonder of every human life, especially the vulnerable, as we labor to promote their welfare and seek their salvation by God's grace. As we hold to the gospel of grace, as we stand in God's freedom under his mercy, may we honor the sacredness and value of every person we encounter. May we show no favoritism, but recognize every soul as both someone who carries God's image and as someone for whom Jesus died. Let us love and word and deed and attitude to the glory of God's name. And I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close in prayer. Dear God, Lord, we thank you so much that you have invested in us. You have chosen to be in relationship with us. You have called us your image bearers, your beloved children. It is your desperate desire that each of us would be made new, that we would know your power, that the evil sin and death would be broken in our lives as we come under your, your blood, as we put our trust in your sacrifice, as we invest our hope in your power to make all things new, to bring life out of death. And may we see one another differently. Immigrant, poor, young and pregnant, unborn, homeless, May we realize that you say every single life is sacred. And may we show that unquenchable mercy, that costly love to which you call us. In Jesus' name.